Uh, last Friday night, I sat down after a full week and a stressful week, and um, I did that that most predictable and famous of all American pastimes. I turned on Netflix, and um, my mom was in town, and so we watched uh, a movie together, but it was Netflix. So what we ended up watching was a movie called Inside Job, which is not a great movie, but it has a great actor in it, Denzel Washington. And so... Um, Given that I knew it wasn't going to be a great movie, I didn't care that much. So uh, right as, as most movies start, for about the first you know, five, six, seven minutes, there's kind of these various scenes going on. Sometimes the, the camera pans out and it's just vague or hazy. Things It's setting a background for what's coming, right? Um, the, the main star is not in there yet. And so after those minutes, I was on my phone, and then I finally heard... Denzel's booming, awesome voice and saw his beautiful self show up on the screen. And that's when I started tuning in, right? The other stuff faded away and he came into the spotlight. All semester, sorry, uh, since spring break, these last three weeks, um, I've been making the claim and saying this book of Ruth is a love story. And it's a love story um, between Ruth and Boaz, but every time I say that, I've been saying, but really, it's, it's, this big, it's a picture of this bigger love story which runs its course throughout all of Scripture. And it's a, it's a love story between the God of the Bible and his people. And it's a story of redemption, much as this story is a story of redemption and kind of a buying back into relationship. The grand overarching narrative of Scripture is God buying his people and bringing them back into a relationship with himself. And what happens tonight is that uh, the central figures of the first few weeks, namely Ruth and, and Boaz, they start to fade a little bit tonight. And that bigger, that bigger love story narrative really starts to rise up in this passage. And so what I want us to see <clears throat> is that... Um, God comes in, in a very veiled form, but a very real form. God comes in and tells his people that he's going to redeem them. And that redemption is the anchor for their hope. It is, redemption is the restorer of all of our hope. We'll see how that applies to this passage, and then we'll draw the thread throughout Scripture and see how that applies to us. So let's look at this passage, Ruth chapter 4. Uh, Verse 1 through 22. This is God's Word. I'm going to probably give some explanatory notes in here at the front because it gets kind of tricky. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Okay, pause. The gate, (laughs) didn't get very far. The gate in an ancient city like this, this is where all business matters and many judicial proceedings, this is where they happened. They would gather the leaders of a city or or of a fortress, whatever, and they would take them to the gate and, and do business or uh, render judgments. So they're going to the gate, and he sits down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken last week, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. Now, Naomi is doing this. Explain this real quick. Naomi is selling this land because 
Uh, when she went off to Moab during the famine, she went with her husband Elimelech and their two sons, uh, Melon and Chirion. And all three of those men, her husband and the two sons, they died in Moab. So when Naomi comes back after the famine, she has this piece of property, but she doesn't have anyone to work the property. And she herself, being somewhat advanced in years and probably not capable of doing it, and that was certainly kind of uh, socially taboo, um, she has this place she can't afford. So she's putting it up for sale. Okay, so um, I'm going to go on there. Verse 4. So I thought I would tell you of it. This is Boaz talking to this redeemer. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. And that simply means buy it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel, sorry, uh, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one who drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, uh, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, sorry, the slides are off, um, you are witnesses this day that I have bought... I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have brought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native people. You are witnesses to this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and he became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Tonight, we're going to see that redemption restores our hope in two ways. The first way it does that is by helping us and causing us to remember what has been done in the past. And the second way that this act of redemption brings and restores our hope is by throwing us into the future and causing us to rejoice in what will be done. 
So it's a looking back and it's a looking forward. Let's look at the first one here, remembering what has been done. When I was a student at OU, much as you're a student here at TU, uh, I went to RUF Summer Conference, which is full. So this is exciting, 55 people going. We've never done that before. Um, And I went down to Summer Conference in Florida, and I sat there in one of the seminars uh, listening to a campus minister talk. Um, I actually don't remember what the topic was, but I remember this thing that he said. He looked down and said that in marriage, uh, it's, it's the marriage which fuels the love, not love which fuels the marriage. And I remember taking notes, and I wrote, I wrote that down because it sounded really profound and insightful. And then after I wrote it down, I realized, and I have no idea what this means. What does it mean that it's the marriage that sustains the love, not the love that sustains the marriage? Well, thankfully, he went on to explain that. And what he said was this. He said, you know, I fall in and out of love with my wife all the time, and she does me too. Meaning our our circumstances and our situations are just all over the place. There are days when we absolutely love each other and we're in love and all the feels are there and it's just great. And then there are times when we we cannot stand each other and we don't want to be in the same room as one another. And we, we are not in love, so to speak. But what he said is, though we fall in and out of love, we do not fall in and out of marriage. And he held up his ring and he said, it is on those days when we are not in love that I look down at my finger and I say, but I am in a marriage. And friends, it's the marriage which sustains the love. The marriage provides the anchor or the foundation for the love. It's not the other way around. And I remember being so, so struck by that. Because to that point, kind of in my life, I had so I idolized and idealized love and marriage that I just thought, and, and really my practice would attest to this, that, that once a relationship started or stopped feeling good, then it was time to bolt and get out of it. And I had about 30 relationships to prove that I really did believe that. Um, <clears throat> sorry, girls. Um, and, and really, that was so profound because I had it absolutely backwards. Naomi and Ruth in this passage, and really everyone who would come after them, were, were confronted with this, this thing, of the, this circumstance, which they said, well, how, how do we know that for sure that we'll be taken care of? How do we know that we have commitment, which is an anchor for our hope? How do we know that? And friends, in this passage right here, there is something that is done. There is a definitive act that happens to which both Ruth, but certainly Naomi, can look and say, that's the thing. In that day, however long ago, Boaz went to the gate, gathered all the witnesses and the elders of the town, and in that moment, he redeemed us. He bought us back. He welcomed us into his family. He solidified our place. It was the commitment. It was that transaction, that act, which flowed out into all the rest of their life. The love that they experienced, the the feels that they had from that point forward were anchored in that action. So think about this from 
from Ruth and Naomi's perspective. Let's try to jump in their shoes for just a second. Here's Ruth. She's an immigrant. She's a sojourner in Israel. She was a Moabite. Moabites were an enemy of Israel. She is in, therefore, enemy territory. She's back in Israel. Now, she's been welcomed in by Boaz, but here she is in a place where she has no family. She has no official standing in society. She has no wealth. She has no claim to any land or any really means to wealth. Um, she has, she really has nothing. In, not in a crass way, but in that sense, she's a nobody in this place. Boaz has taken her under his wing, but outside of him, she's a nobody. And it's not too hard to imagine how Ruth, as a nobody, as a sojourner in this land, would have been massively insecure about what she was bringing to the table. Think about this. What if I never get a job? What if I never have friends? What if I never get married? Which was actually highly likely. She was a foreigner. Um, What if I'm insignificant or insignificant and remain unknown forever? What if I'm really not valuable? What if I'm not attractive? What if my personality really isn't great? What, again, what if I never have friends? What if people find out I'm pretty boring? What if I never fit in? What if I never belong here? Right. It's a lot of the same questions that, that you and I ask. What, what if I'm just, at the end of the day, I'm found out to be me? So Ruth comes into this place with certainly these questions, others. And for her to answer that question of, what if I never belong? The only way for her to answer that is in this transaction, is in this action that we see here in Ruth chapter 4. The only way she can answer those questions is to look and say, I am loved. I am part of a family. I do belong. I am a somebody. Because look what this man did for me. Look what this person did for me. Now this isn't, as soon as I say that, I feel the alarm is going off like, oh, how come the guys are always the heroes and the women are always made to be second class? That's not the the bigger picture of what's going on here. Ruth is welcomed in by a redeemer. Someone who has said, I pledge all that I have for you and you come into me and into my wealth. So Ruth's, this, this action, this transaction, fuels her present hope. Because from that moment on, she can look back and say, that happened. It is, she is, can look at her wedding ring, or whatever the equivalent was back then, Boaz's Birkenstock, um, and say, it happened. <laughs> I am Boaz's. He has one shoe because of me. Think about this for Naomi. Naomi had to leave Bethlehem with her husband and her two sons because of the famine, as I mentioned. They go away. She comes back. She has this land, this family land, but she can't work it. She can't take care of it. She has no one to do that. And so this would have been embarrassing, but it would have been more than just embarrassing. It would have been a great like, travesty because in that culture, wealth, I mean, much as in our culture, wealth passed from generation to generation But in that culture where wealth was bound up in land, that was a huge deal. Because that was your means of sustenance. It was your means of of inheritance. It was your means of of taking care of of your family near and, and more broadly. And if Naomi has to sell her land, and if she 
she has no one to carry on the lineage, then the lineage dies. Elimelech's family thing comes to an end. And that's, that is a small thing. We don't really understand it. For her, that was huge. It was the biggest thing in her world. And so when Boaz steps into this picture and agrees to buy this field and to take Ruth as his wife, what he's saying is, Naomi, I'm going to take care of you. Now, what we have to know is that it's not fully taken care of yet. Him just buying the land, still, Naomi herself does not have a descendant. Boaz is over here in the family tree. He's not down here. He's not through her line. But notice what happens at the end of that passage whenever Ruth has this child, Obed. In verse 14 and 15, the women of the town gather around Naomi and they celebrate this and say this, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And they're they're talking to Naomi. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. Now we might be thinking that's talking about, may the Lord's name be renowned in Israel, but it's not. What they're saying is, may this child's name be renowned. Naomi, this child is your Redeemer. This is the child who's going to carry on the family line. 15, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And that was a big deal because what that meant for Naomi, now that she had a a grandson, as it were, is that she had someone who was directly responsible to take care of her and to take care of her line and to continue the family. Naomi could look back at this action and all that's happening here and say, it's been done. It, It is a definitive act of history. And in that, I can rest and my hope is restored. Okay. Why in the world are we talking about this? Why are you giving half hour, an hour of your Wednesday night in college to listen to me talk about something that happened 3,000 years ago in a land that most of us could really care less about? Because it matters, and here's why. We live right now in by far, I mean, by far the most technologically advanced, high-speed fluid period in the history of the world. Now, I get it. Every culture that's ever around is more technologically advanced than the one before. We all have to agree it's amazing how quickly things are moving and progressing right now. Yesterday's biggest and most important thing in the world is forgotten today. Isn't that amazing, y'all? Like, the thing that just rocked the news yesterday or last week is absolutely a byproduct. We don't even remember it. Last week, the Panama Papers leaked. Y'all know that? Y'all even know what that was? Some of you? Most of you are like, eh. It's not even like in the top ten headlines right now. It was a big deal. It doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but it's just not there anymore. Fast-paced, things are moving. In an era of unbelievable technology and instant access to unlimited entertainment, here's what's amazing. We literally have unfiltered access to things that we think will bring us joy and happiness, and yet the reality of our lives is defined by fear and anxiety and cynicism, is it not? And I, mean, and I say our right there very intentionally. The reality of our lives is dominated by fear and anxiety and cynicism. 
We have such a hard time trusting anybody or anything. We're always looking for the silver lining in it. What's in this for you? Why is he running for president? Why does he want to be on the school board? Why does she want this office? There's got to be something else here. We have a hard time trusting. We live in, in many ways hopeless, I think, that things will actually be fine, much less different or better. We really do struggle with hope. And in a time when the winds of change never stop blowing around us, what we need the most is roots. And yet what we continue to grab for are leaves. We need something that will take us down and anchor us, and yet we're perpetually making new sails which just throw us around in the course of the day by the wind. We're being blown around and tossed to and fro And friends, that leaves us in the place that it leaves us right now. We struggle. We don't have much hope. Where is your hope rooted? What is the thing or the things which at the end of the day you think, this is what I'm counting on, this is what I'm banking on in life? This is the thing or the person or the place or the whatever that I'm, I'm looking to to kind of deliver the goods for me one day. Where is your hope rooted? In the Christian worldview, and I realize some of you aren't a Christian, and, and that's great. I'm really am glad you're here. That's why I'm going to explain it this way. In the Christian worldview, hope broke into the world in a defined historical moment. And it looked like this, that, that God who created the world, again, in the Christian worldview, God who created the world saw this world turn from him, and it rebelled against him. And God said, I am not going to let it continue that way. And so from very early on, he enacted a plan whereby he would come and redeem the world, whereby he would come and use that redemption to restore hope in this world. And so what happened is that God himself entered into the world in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, he accomplished redemption. He did it. He actually did it. Jesus was a historical, real person. And the resurrection beyond what you think about it or what you've heard about it from professors or whatever, the cynicism with which you view it, There is great reason to believe that the resurrection is a historical fact. There absolutely is. I can put scholarly works in front of you for days, and you would be hard-pressed to challenge the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Hope in the Christian worldview has a verifiable historical thing to which we can look and say, if you're a Christian, you can say, that happened. I have hope for the present and for the future because that happened. Jesus was a real person who died a real death on a cross. It's in history. And he was resurrected from the dead and there were many people who saw him. The Apostle Paul says there were 500 people who saw him and he goes on to say many of which are still alive. In fact, you can go and ask them. They're still alive. They saw Jesus. Josephus and other historians would attest to these things too. So to be a Christian then means that your hope is restored and rooted 
through what He has done for you, not what you've done for Him. I talk to um, y'all all the time. And um, one of the things that I hear from y'all, and certainly one of the things that I know to be true of myself, is that when things are hard in life, when we're either struggling with, with sin or, or doubt or, or just life is coming down in on us, we feel, we feel blown around and tossed about I mean, just all day long. And when I start to ask you um, what's going on, uh, you start to talk about all these things, and I say, well, um, you know, what do you do in the midst of that? It really is a, is a good question. Most of you say, I don't, I don't know. That's why I'm talking to you. Tell me, what do I do in the midst of this? And I want to say this, y'all, that if you look to your present life circumstances to define your present hope and your future hope, you have great reason to be scared. Because you, in and of yourself, you are not capable to make this life work. You aren't good enough, and you're good people. You aren't smart enough, and you are some of the smartest people I've ever met. You're not capable enough, and you're some of the most efficient and, and, and together people that I've encountered my whole life. You cannot make this life work on your own. If you are the anchor of your own hope, you will struggle to find existential okayness for the rest of your life. I promise you. So what do we do? We look back 2,000 years at what Jesus has done. That is the anchor of your hope. It's what He has done for you, and He has called you to be His. And He said, you will struggle, and I love strugglers. You will sin, and I love sinners. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners I came to save. So Naomi and Ruth could look at this event and say, our redemption is fixed, and therefore our hope is secure. Something definitive has been done. But I actually think there's something even more hopeful than that in this passage. Because redemptive love doesn't just restore our hope by looking back and saying that's been done. Redemptive love brings and and, and restores our hope by causing us to rejoice in what will be done. In what will be done one day, someday. Look on uh, in this passage from verse 14 on, if you look in your handout. The language and kind of the, the ethos and the mentality of this passage turns toward the future. The women who are celebrating with Naomi are saying this, that, that, uh, of this young boy, Obed, say, He shall be to you a restorer of life. Right? There's this embedded kind of thrust into the future. He's just a baby now, but, but when he's older and he can work and take care of the land, he is going to restore life to you. Right? And he'll be a nourisher of your old age. And then, then Naomi takes this child, Obed, and, and puts him in her lap and, and nurses him. Now, whether that's physically nursing him or whether that's just more like giving care to him, the word there is vague, we don't really know. What it's saying is that Naomi is taking this child almost as if it's hers and saying, absolutely, I will care for you. And the, her, the women around her say, actually say, this is, look, the Lord has given a son to Naomi. That this is such her real hope of what this boy will be, that it's as if he is her own son. Friends, there is no greater picture, I don't think, of promised hope than raising a baby. Because babies can do nothing on their own. Trust me, it's exhausting. 
And I'm not even the one who has to nurse. Like, it is absolutely exhausting. You give these children your time. You give them your bodies. You give them your money. You give them everything you have, your schedule. And you're just pouring into them at every point, at every turn. You're giving yourself for these children. And the payout right now, there's some sweet things about it. But it is far more work than just payout, I assure you. But the promise of children is that one day they're going to come back and they're going to take care of you. And they're going to look at me and say, Daddy, I love you so much. Thank you for all the time you spent with me when I was a kid. Thank you for not hitting me when I was yelling as loud as I did and screaming. Thank you for not being the kind of dad that some of my friends have. Daddy, thank you for all the stuff you did. That's making me sound like a better dad than I am. You get the picture. Children are are an investment in a future hope. Naomi grabs this baby as if to say, Obed, you are my hope. But notice what the author does in this passage. The author doesn't end this story with Obed. He goes on to say two times, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father... Sorry, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. David was the great king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel. Imagine if you were living during David's reign. God had told Israel that they were to be a great nation, that they were to spread over the whole land, and they were to take His kindness and spread it throughout the kingdom. And in David's reign, the kingdom had reached its maximum brilliance. And so if you're reading this, you're saying, man, isn't that awesome? This rags to riches story that Ruth and Naomi, they were out there in Moab and they had nothing and they came back to Israel and God built them up. The passage says that the Lord gave Ruth conception. Isn't it awesome that God brought David from this mess? And the answer is yes, it is awesome. But friends, David was a great king of Israel. But David failed. He was not the fullest realization of this hope. And this is why in the New Testament, Matthew, who himself met Jesus and was miraculously changed in his life, He starts writing about all that Jesus did in his gospel. And you could read it, the book of Matthew. This is how he starts his account of Jesus. He says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And I'm not going to read this whole genealogy for us because we would fall asleep. But what he does is he goes all the way back. He starts, um, he actually starts at Abraham, goes down to David, and then goes from David to Jesus And he traces out and he's saying, look, this story does not find its climax in King David. He was Israel's greatest king, but he was just a great king. He was not the great king. This story, this redemptive love story from Genesis to Revelation finds its climax in the person and work of Jesus. Let me tell you about that, Matthew says. So he draws this line from Jesus back to David. And so why does he do this? What's so powerful about that? Two things. One, 
is it says this, that the God of the Bible is a God who makes promises and keeps them. God promised to Father Abraham long, long ago that if he would trust him, then God would make Abraham's family more numerous than the sand on the seashore. He would make him into a great nation, and he is in his nation and his family would be a blessing to the whole world, and he would give them a land that would be theirs forever. And in Jesus, we see a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham because Jesus is the son of Abraham. And Paul goes on to say that all who believe in Jesus are adopted into Abraham's family. And so the first thing that means is that God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. And so this means that when you open the Bible and you see God promise something to his people, and if you are one of his people through faith in Jesus, you can look at that promise and say, God, I'm holding you to it. If you tell me in Romans 8 that if if you're for me, then it doesn't matter who's against me, then God, I'm going to trust you. That when, the, when my friends turn on me, when my fraternity thinks I did a crappy job as president, when, when whatever happens, I'm trusting that you care about me. And it means that if everyone else in the world leaves you, he will never leave you because he promises that he will never leave or forsake us. He is a promise-keeping God. That's one of the reasons Matthew does this. The second reason he does it It's because he's saying this, that when God redeems you, he doesn't just look at Jesus on the cross and say, look, you can be forgiven. You're loved and forgiven. That's not the end of your story because that's not the end of the biblical story. Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He was resurrected. And that matters because this, if all Jesus did was die, if he was not resurrected, then what that, mean, what that means is that your sin has been paid for and that you have a right relationship with God in this life right now. But it means that when you die, there is nothing after that. Because if your Savior is still in the grave, then when you die, you're going to the grave also. What it means is that if Jesus came out of the grave at the resurrection, and if you are united to Him by faith, not only is your sin paid for at the cross, Your future life is secure. It is coming. Even though you die in this body, you will live forever with Him. And one day you will get a resurrected body back just like Jesus did. And that's where the Bible ends. That's where this love story finds its culmination in the book of Revelation. It's a picture of this new city coming down to earth. We don't end in disembodied spirits floating around in heaven, you know, like singing kumbaya and playing harps and all that. That is not where the Bible story ends. It ends when heaven comes down to earth and you get your resurrected body just like Jesus got his. And it is this world on steroids. And they're the best kind of steroids because there's going to be no hangover. It's going to be amazing, y'all. That's the culmination of the redemptive story. The gospel of Jesus does not tie your hope to a relationship, to a grade, to a grad school, to a job, to the stock market, to kids. 
The gospel of Jesus ties your hope to a person. The gospel of Jesus ties your hope to a God who is able to do anything and everything for you and who in Jesus has already done everything for you. Jean-Paul Sartre was a French existentialist, philosopher, and novelist. At the end of his life, he found himself, just a little over a month before he died, declaring this. He so strongly did not want to end his life in despair that he would say to himself over and over again, I know I shall die in hope. I know I shall die in hope. I know I shall die in hope. He was not a Christian, though. In profound sadness, he had to add, but hope needs a foundation. A mantra for your life isn't enough. Just continuing to tell yourself that, oh, I guess everything will work out for a reason. Um, things just happen that way and everything's going forth for a reason. Just kind of that, that generality, that vague notion that this world's all moving forward to this great grand plan and you're somewhere in there. That doesn't work, y'all. Your hope needs a foundation. It needs an anchor. And in Jesus Christ, the greater Boaz, the greater husband, the greater redeemer, your hope has its anchor. It has its foundation in what He has done for you and what He is going to do for you one day, someday, if you're in Him. Look, if you're a Christian, He is calling you tonight to renew your hope in Him, to let go of the other things that you've tied your hope and your life and your joy to. And Jesus is saying, look, that stuff is never going to work. Come back to me. If you are not a Christian tonight, for the last time this year in RUF, hear Jesus invite you to Him. Hear Jesus say, look, I will give you a steadfast and sure anchor for your soul, and it, will, it is going to be one that never disappoints you. And it will root you and ground you in today and it will cast you into the future in hope. Come to Him. Be forgiven. Receive His love and be adopted into God's family. Naomi's hope came through a baby. And your, your hope came through a baby who was born 2,000 years ago and who lived the life that you didn't live and who died the death that you deserve and who is resurrected to give you the life that you were created to have, will you find yourself in Him? Let's pray together.